2: Hello, everyone, welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and all this week I am on the Waterloo battlefield. I'm here with Waterloo Uncovered, a remarkable organisation that brings military veterans to conduct conflict archaeology on the battlefields of Europe. What they're finding here is just crazy. It's providing a whole new aspect to the Battle of Waterloo, that clash between Wellington and Napoleon. I can't wait to bring you all the details. We're going to have a dedicated podcast here on warfare and a brand new documentary on History Hit TV, in a couple of weeks, so watch out for that. But all this month on warfare, we are dedicated to the Korean War. We started off with Dr Ian Johnson telling us about why the conflict took place in the first place. Then we heard from Rob Rumble, director of HMS Belfast, who explained why Belfast was part of that UN Rapid Response Force. Today, however, it is a huge pleasure to welcome Ron Yardley on the podcast. Ron is a veteran of the Korean War. He served two years on HMS Belfast, and I was able to interview him on his old home on Belfast in central London to hear all about his experiences during the Korean War. Enjoy.
3: Hi, Ron. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Um, not too bad. Uh, there was no way in the world that I was going to miss this today, my very first podcast.
2: Oh, well, that is an absolute honour. We appreciate it. And here
3: on HMS Belfast. Oh, uh, well, my second home. Does it feel like being at home? Oh, yeah. yeah. When the ship came in to the pool in London in October 1971, I was working in an office immediately across the other side of the river. So you saw it coming up? So I went down to the riverbank and it was crowded with people and I was about the fourth row back and then we waited and waited and after an eternity the bridge went up very, very slowly, very slowly and then after another few minutes two little tugs come huffing and puffing under the bridge and then we saw the bow of the ship Oh, it was just overwhelming. Oh, I have no, no problem in admitting that I just cried and cried. It had been nearly 20 years since i seen her. And there was a lady standing in front of me who, who heard me sobbing away. And she turned round and said, uh, Are you all right, my man? I said, Well, I'm fine, yes, I'm fine. She said, Well, what are you crying for? And I said, well, my old home has just come back again. And she said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, that was my home for two years. I said, in the Korean War, and everybody all around me all gasped, and some of them started clapping and so forth, and I just so overcome. And I waited and waited until she had birthed, and then I went back to my office, and my staff, I was a manager at the time, and my staff saw that my eyes were somewhat red and said, you all right? And I said, well, I shed a few tears a little while ago, I said, because a very special ship has just come in. And uh, and then it went on from there. And I suppose with it, we had 3,000 employees within the company. And I suppose within, three months, I'd had a request from almost everyone to take me, take them aboard the ship. <laughs>
2: so. Oh, yeah. Everyone's going to want to hear your history. And it's still going on. We're doing it to you yeah, today. Yeah, Yes.
3: So I've been doing this for over 20 years now. And uh, I'm 90 years old. You know, my family say, well, when are you going to give up, Going, I said, well, I'm not going to give up, right? Somehow or other, I'll get up and do whatever.
2: Well, we appreciate it. And it is a special ship.
3: Yes, it is.
2: So take us back into that history, if you may. When was it that you first saw HMS Belfast? When did you first step
3: aboard? Oh, well, that really was a very defining moment because I had finished my basic training and I'd finished my training also as a wireless operator, which was quite lengthy. And Chatham Naval Base was my home base because you had Chatham, Devonport and Portsmouth yeah. as the three main bases. And uh, I said to my sister before I joined, I said, oh, I'll try to get Portsmouth as my home base. She said, well, I'll get Chatham because it's nearer, which it was, but very problematic. So I joined Chatham and around about September time, August, September. You had what is called a drafting office in these bases, and you went there each day to see if your name was on on the list and what ship you was going on and so forth. And I went down one day and there was my name against HMS Belfast, which was, meant absolutely nothing to me. I didn't know about the Belfast at all. Anyway, I went on my vacation leave and my father knew where Korea was but he was a man of very few words and he never let on how far away it was, some 8,000 odd miles. So I went back to the base and on the day that the new crew joined the ship, we all fell in on the very big Chatham parade ground. And then all of a sudden, the Royal Marine Band turned up, Chatham Royal Marine Band and uh, they lined up, and then we all lined up behind it. And it was a very, very proud moment, because the Royal Marine Band played and took us all out of the Chatham barracks, all along the dockyard and so forth, to where the old ship was moored. And my first impression was, how am I ever going to find my way around that
2: ship? Well, I've got lost three times today. I'm not going to lie. Oh, you've done (laughs) well then.
3: But so the band played and took us all to the ship, and we walked up the gangway, and that's where your troubles really started because you had to find where your mess was. They didn't have a clue. Do we go that way? Do we go this way? Do we go up that ladder? Do we go down this ladder? Anyway, somehow or other, my mistake was the Arctic Mastex, of which there's a very considerable history attached to them because they were the Mastex where the crew of the forty-two, forty-three Commission were playing escort for the Russian convoys and uh, they were without words, the most horrendous journeys of all time.
2: Did you know much about that history when you came on to Belfast? Were you briefed on the fact that this ship already had a proud history of being involved with Scharnhorst?
3: No, we weren't. And uh, you gradually got to know about them as as time went on. But I finally found the Mystic, where I was in, going to be for the next couple of years in the Arctic Mystic. And I thought, my goodness, no, they're not very big, are they, and, you know? And we had 16 men in them, little Well, what, what were you sleeping on? Did you have fixed bunks or...? No, we didn't have we, no. we, we, hammocks. You see, I mean, some of the things, some of the day-to-day living features went back to Nelson's time. The hammocks went back to Nelson's time. Right. and there were one or two other things that went back and uh, it was then The rum be- rushing? Oh the rum rushing, oh yeah well that became uh, an integral part of life at 12 oh, yeah. o'clock every day and that, you know. but when you went in your mess deck, you had your hammocks to put up every night or take down sometimes during the night depending on what watch you was on and so forth but seniority The place, first places, all right, okay, and that was not officers, right? Because we were all lower-deck personnel. And me being a very junior sort of uh, chappie, you had to sort of put yours where there was space available. Was this your first ship? No, I wish it had been because uh, very little time for the first one I was (laughs) on, which was a frigate which you were sent to sea on. She was a rusty old frigate named HMS Cowdray. And you was put on there to find whether you got your sea legs, so forth. And our first journey, or my only journey, thank heavens, was across the North Sea. And uh, the North Sea's never, ever calm, right? And as a young recruit, that was my first fave flavor shall we say of what naval light was going to be for the next eight years and uh, it was absolutely a shocking journey we went across to Cookshaven in Germany and then came back again a few days later and as rough as it got I had to remember the last words my father said to me before I left home and he said well I wish you all the best. He said, but I'll tell you one thing. If you don't like it, don't you come running back to me. Now, a lot of people thought those words very harsh and very hard from father to son. But what he was saying is you're going into a totally new life, which is going to be very hard a lot of times. And you're going to be living and meeting with young chaps from every quarter of life. Those who've lived in poverty, those who are got a job and so forth. So he said, expect an awful lot of change. He said, but if you don't like what you have signed up for, you've got to deal with it.
2: And did he know, was he a Navy man? Oh, yes. So you had a word to the wise. I've never
3: forgot them, even now. Those you guys. know, if I make a decision that turns out wrong, I immediately think of my father's words.
2: Take us into this point. So you've had this marine band sending you off. Yeah. You're stepping on board to Belfast. Yeah. Do you know you're going off to war? Because the Korean War has started by this point. Am I right in thinking that HMS Belfast, it had been out there, it had rapid response to the start of hostilities in Korea, yeah. and it had to come back, yeah. and then you were the relief crew?
3: Yeah, absolutely. When we first knew we were going on board to Belfast, we thought, well, where is it? and then all of a sudden we found out that she had been out on the Far East Station, as it's called, for nearly two years. But the Korean War started in June 1950, and when that started under the banner of the United Nations, she quickly was sent up to Korea to take part in the first activities. But because she had been out there almost two years, As against now, when they fly out new crews and fly old crews back again, that never existed in those days. So the ship had to sail eight and a half thousand miles back from Korea to Chatham, have a bit of work done on her and replenished and the and so forth. And then the new crew joined her. There were still a few of the old crew who were left on board to go out back again, but the rest of us, well well over 90% were new crew members, and we knew that we were going back to the Korean War.
2: But you didn't know where Korea
3: was? No. All I knew, it was 8,500 miles away, and there was a war going on, but what sort of war it was going to be? Somebody said it was a police state war, and there was all sorts of uh, suggestions of what it was. But when we sailed from... Chatham in October 1950, we were first of all blessed with a very wonderful captain. There are different levels of captain and officers in the Navy as there are in any other force. But we were very fortunate we had what we called a man-to-man captain. He never put his rank above you. He treated you as you were on the same level. Captain Aubrey St. Clair Ford, and his nickname was Strawberry Ford, and that was, but he was a very crew-orientated man. You know, we always had a lot of respect for him. On certain ships, there's not much respect between captain and officers, Mm -hmm. and the lower deck, but on the Belfast, that didn't exist, didn't it? You know, well, it couldn't, because we were going into a war, which none of us had experienced in our lives. I was barely 18 and I'd gone from one aspect of life, which was quiet and comfortable and that, right to the other extreme. It took a long time for us to get out to Korea because because we were carrying a new crew, you had to go through what is called working up exercises in that all new members of the crew, especially, had to be trained up to the very highest level. And especially, you know, like the gun crews, but even more so the wireless operators, because if you wrote down wrong an, income, an incoming message, that could change the whole feature of the message, of and, you know. So that is why, as a junior, my job in the wireless room was the one right down below decks, not the bridge wireless office, which is up near the captain's bridge and so forth, because I was still, in effect, learning the trade in real life situations and that, you know.
2: So, when you arrive in Korea, you're already pretty shattered, but you are
3: war ready. You're ready to go. Yeah, I often, well, I always tell what my first impressions or our first impressions were after arriving in Korea. We spent Christmas in Hong Kong and then from there we moved up to Korea. Oh no, we went to Japan first. Yeah, we went to Sasebo. And this was all totally new to me, you know, hearing different foreign voices and everything and all their habits and so forth. But the first day in Korea, the temperature was 30 degrees below zero. That's not something we think about when we think no. of Korea. And five days later, it was 35 degrees below zero, and that is cold, really cold, right? And it just shook you to you. But people in like in my branch, you didn't have to go up on deck very much, thankfully. We didn't have the warm clothing, like the modern servicemen has got, which is multi-layer clothes to keep out the cold. We just put on as many scarves and we could find as many pairs of socks we could find and so forth. And you, just, you, know, you had the heating come through the mess deck. It wasn't as much as you wanted, yeah. certainly those seriously cold conditions. And if, for example, you were on the upper deck and you happened to touch the side of the ship in any way, and you would have been stupid to do so, you wouldn't get your hand back off again because severe cold causes severe burning at the same time and your hand will become stuck to the metal, you to it and you can't get it off. But because we had a Lieutenant Surgeon on board, which I can talk about later if you wish, he had to be called to come and get your hand off of that, okay? And that was a pretty awful experience.
2: So you're right. not only fighting in the war here, but you're fighting the weather. Does the ship start icing up or did you not have yes, the heavy yes. you does. so you've got to de- ice the ship as well. Because yes. you have you can have the risk of toppling, right? If you get top yes, heavy with too you much do. ice?
3: Yeah, I mean the seas were frozen over and so forth and although we could generally get our way through them because of the size of it. But you've not got a reinforced hull for, no, for ice, no. no. But it was all part of the day, shall we say? And you quite often stood and shook your head and thought, "How on earth am I? Do I find myself here?" <laughs> you know, with such extreme temperatures and everything else, it made life very, very unpleasant indeed. But you had to change and get used to them and carry on to do your job to the very high standard that you were trained for. So that's one
2: threat to life, is the weather. When did you first start to engage in battle?
3: Well, the Belfast's main and really overall function in the Korean War was the bombardment of big targets ashore. If I can just go back a short bit, in so much as that, in 1950, we had a real, real Navy. We had umpteen cruisers through three battleships, umpteen destroyers and frigates, and aircraft carriers in particular. Well, the, the pilots from the aircraft carriers used to go up and fly over the Korea, get us targets, and they would be sent back to the ship, and then we would do our best to put those targets out of action.
2: And would you be taking those communications as a wireless operator, or what, would you, what information would you be taking in and relaying
3: back? Well because I wasn't working in the bridge wireless office, what used to happen is that the pilots used to send details and the uh, readings yeah, uh, to the right, in, yeah. as to where the target was and briefly what it was, was it railway yards or factories or whatever. And they would be taken down by the wireless operator in the bridge wireless office. And it was only a few feet from the bridge wireless office to the captain's on the bridge, you see, and they would be passed directly out to him. Mm-hmm. And then it would be decided whether we went for those targets or not, OK? The range of the six-inch guns was 14 miles at that time, which was a long way in 1950, right? Nowadays, you fire something, it can be in another continent in half an hour, okay. and, and so forth, right? So the six-inch guns is to be set up to bombard these targets. Unfortunately for us in our mess deck, we were immediately below the six-inch guns, forward six-inch guns. And I could sit here as long as you want. I would still never able to properly describe the noise, the blast and the after effects of the ship creaking over each time they were fired and it was just... Can you describe the thud of those
2: guns, or is it just, I mean, unless you're there, you just don't know what it's like? Well, your
3: latter question is the nearest of all. When they go off for the first time that you're in there, you wonder what on earth has happened. You just can't relate it to. I mean, it depends. Well, the six-inch guns used to go be fired up to once every five minutes, depending on how many targets we got to try and put out of action. In the mess deck, there was very little that would move around because of that very reason of six-inch gun. But now and again, things maybe weren't put away as they should be. And when the six-inch guns used to fire, those things that were used used to whistle above your head. So what, the force of the gun firing? The the blast of the guns used to lift these things and shoot them across the mistake. right? If you was walking along the main corridor of the ship, main passageway, you would just be chucked from one side to the other. And if you can think that there are no soft parts on the ship at all anywhere, you come back battered and bruised, but, If you were sitting at the mess table, say twelve o'clock dinner time, your food would be because all the food in those days was served up in the mess deck. We didn't have a ship's company dining room in those days. Everything was done and served in the mess deck. And I tell the story that on one day after the first or two of uh, the ship firing at six-inch guns, I had my plate of dinner on the table and my knife and fork, and there was about four or five others sitting around the Mastec table having theirs. And I was just about to put my knife and fork down on my food, and then the six-inch guns fired, and the plate shot up about a foot in front of me, fell down on the table, and all my dinner, which you only got one of a day, was spread out all over the table and the mesh deck floor and so forth. And of course, in those days, and probably today, the crew always made a joke of that, you see. But because I was pretty young and, uh, and so forth, they all roared with laughter. Because when you join the Navy, for whatever, it's been tradition that you're given a nickname. And because my name surname is Yardley, as it happens, cricket has been my main source of entertainment. I'm, I've been president of my cricket club and various leagues in Essex for many years. And so my nickname became Norman Yardley, who was the captain of Yorkshire and England way back in the 1950s. Oh,
2: okay, that's not a bad nickname. I thought you were gonna say no, they're gonna give you it,
3: something for spilling the food. So they say, all laughed and said, Norman's lost his dinner. And I just sat there and me plate had come down, upside down. So, all my dinner gone. I thought, well, that's it until tomorrow. see. but then, good natured that the navy chaps were, they said, right, give us your plate, Norman. Uh, Passed it round the rest of the crew, and by the time I got my plate back, I'd got more on mine than they had got left than theirs. So, I thought about playing that trick again a few times, Some <laughs> a bit of Sums the sort of camaraderie, though, right? Oh yes, yes. But the last from the ship, depending on whether we'd fired on port side or starboard side, the ship used to keel over right. by the shear blades. And you did wonder sometimes whether mm. it was gonna get back on an even keel.
2: And then it would keep rocking, I'm sure. Uh,
3: it, as long as it kept on fire, and it would keep on rocking back and forth. And it was very, very scary, very scary indeed. Okay. And if, for example, you had been on watch during the night and you'd come back to the Mestec and try to get back in your hammock, which I could go on and explain, but if the, he was trying to sleep during the morning after being on watch, the blast from the six-inch guns used to lift you up in the hammock and drop you down again. And you never got used to that.
2: No, I, I mean, I can't imagine you would. From Wondery, American History Tellers is a podcast that explores extraordinary events from the history of the United States and brings them to life. And in an all-new season, you'll learn about a tragedy that is often overlooked in American history, the Great Mississippi Flood. In the summer of 1926, the American Midwest saw rainfall like it had never seen before, and there was only one place for all that rain to go, the Mississippi River. In total, the flood submerged 27,000 square miles in seven states, destroying crops, paralyzing transportation, and washing away hundreds of farms and communities. By the time the floodwaters receded, as many as 1,000 Americans were dead, and more than 600,000 were left homeless. Learn about the forgotten history of one of America's worst natural disasters and how the racism, exploitation and betrayal that followed it transformed the American landscape forever. Listen to American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen one week early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
2: It's a small room here, isn't it, Ron? It is very small. To duck my head to get in, what are we talking about? Like, what, three metres across, five metres long? It's not like you'd think of a chapel to be, like a, a cathedral
3: or a church, it's tiny. No, no, if, uh, and it possibly doesn't sort of relate to the number of crew members on board, and that, you know, nearly. Well, how many would you get in here? Well, we used to come in here, so if there was a service, Maybe one of the ship's crew had been killed, as I mentioned before. But we used to come in here for, you know, sit and have a bit of peace and quiet. And, uh, uh, of course, they've got in here all the things that relate to previous crew members with a uh, book of remembrance and uh, the poppy is here. In actual fact, every Remembrance Sunday, I come up, I've been coming up for many years now, and I lay the wreath on behalf of the Belfast Association, and I've been doing that for I don't know how long now. So a lot of those wreaths will relate to that. And of course, on the flags here, you have got the battle honours.
2: Oh, yep, Arctic 1943, Arctic, yeah, North, Cape, North Cape 43. Cape. But, yeah Normandy so yeah that's a big one
3: and then Korea and Korea at the end uh the bottom 50 52.
2: and the the longest deployment there as well I guess yes and
3: uh it's a very very proud battle honors that we got there
2: but this this place for you Ron actually when you were serving
3: on board was this an important place for you personally oh it was it was me uh you know didn't matter what your faiths were this was the one place apart from when the Maybe guns were firing that you could come and have a little bit of peace and quiet and so forth, and sit and just uh, relax and uh, gather your thoughts as much as anything, and uh, sort of hopefully get you through to the next time. But it is its had a very, very special meeting for us, this place in my in my heart over the years, and. Uh, It's somewhere where, although it's locked now, I always come and just stand for a few moments and uh, think about 72 years ago, long, long time, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a very special place and it's always very much, there's a great deal of part in people's crew members' minds about this place, and you know, because there used to be all sorts of things that you would want to come in here for, especially maybe if you lost somebody at home. Yeah. You know, if you got a letter to say, so-and-so died, this is somewhere we could come and just sit and reflect and so forth, so.
2: And it was yeah. so busy
3: on ship, this must have been
2: one yeah, of the only yeah, places it you was. could sit
3: with a bit yeah, of quiet. It was, there's no doubt, there was nowhere else, because there was always a hive of activity, and uh, but, this was a place, I can't remember now how many times I, I would have come in here in, on my time on the ship, and uh, yes, it's uh,
2: And it's, it's maintained a place of importance for you and your family, hasn't it? Because what's that bell over there?
3: Well, a the christenings take. As I mentioned earlier, I had two of my grandchildren christened in here many years ago. Um, in that bell? Yes, yes, by the, by the ship's chaplain, whose name was Arthur Natalie and we had a little service in there, there wasn't the whole of the families, couldn't get them in there, but my son's family with the two children, and I remember very clearly the ship's chaplain at the end of the service, standing behind the two of my grandchildren with his hand on each of their heads. And I've got photographs at home showing those, that particular instance, so yes, and they were christened here in the, the ship's chapel in that line there, so it's a lot, it's a
2: lot. Well, it's, a, it's an absolute honor and a privilege to be able to come and step in here. I know it is usually locked, like you said. And we're gonna to go to another place of importance on the ship now. Would you mind showing us your mess, your mess deck? Yes, absolutely. Yeah? All right, let's go take a look. After you, Ron, this is this is your ship and this is the mess deck so we're looking at around what 10 meters in length around 20 meters wide it's pretty low ceilings how many men would have been sleeping
3: in here uh 20. 20 that's around about that time but that's with the hammocks laid out that was the hammocks yes but there was never enough room for enough hammocks to be put up uh, related to the crew so some of you would have to take your hammock and maybe go off somewhere else and find a space for it, okay? okay? So you
2: sleep wherever you can?
3: Yes, I mean, as I said in my first part, is that putting your hammock up was dealt really in levels of seniority. You had the leading in wireless telegavist, then you would have the telegavist, then you would have the ordinary telegavist, okay? So the lead interlegalist would always have first choice of where he put his hammock up, okay. This doesn't always apply to every ship and so forth, but that was what applied here. and So that, there was a hierarchy? Well, hierarchy within the lower deck, shall yeah. I say. And okay. where were you? You were, you were pretty new. I was pretty new, but somehow or other, I always had a space, a hammock space in here. Hammocks are a part or were a part of real naval tradition. And they have to be done up a certain way. There just have to be seven rings on the hammock to represent the seven seas, okay? Yeah, it goes back, but it is not always implied, but uh, it certainly did throughout my naval career. And you have to do them up absolutely correct because if an officer, came along and happened to look at the hammocks and they weren't done up properly. You'd have to take them down and keep doing it until you got it right. So It wasn't overly difficult at all. And just around the corner there you have what is called the hammock rack. Right. So when you got up in the morning and you took your hammock down and lashed it up with those seven cords, you then put it in the uh, hammock right? until you took it out again but then where would you keep all your stuff oh here you go look what's this rg yardley
2: is this your one you left your stuff behind <laughs> is this where you keep stuff no
3: no right. everything that was in the hammock used to be have to be kept in these lockers you never kept anything in your hammock as such because it would just take up too much room, so it get thrown off when the ship starts. firing. Yeah, and so forth. But uh, we could never uh, have everything. So they were the ship's lockers, and that's where you kept all your uniforms, your everyday things like. Uh,
2: so these sacks in the corner on the ship now. This is just messy. This
3: wouldn't have happened on. No, no, no. no not no. acceptable. No, and these are only replicas, yeah. uh, makeshift replicas. Yeah they are nowhere near as big as what we used to have and our names have been put on in a rather haphazard way uh, by our staff in the IWM but we used to have a hammock issued from the day you joined the Navy and that your name had to be properly inscribed on them with block letters and, right. uh, and so forth. You have the same hammock? But this has just been done to give a little bit more atmosphere to the the ship and then so where would you hang the hammocks then?
2: these bars that we can see so we've got big thick black metal bars over our heads that almost like you could do a a pull up on I'm not I'm not going to I'll leave that to to you Ron but
3: um, you know is is this what you tied your hammocks to yes what you used to do you used to tie your hammock up on these bars but you had to make certain you had done it right because if you didn't do uh, the knots right or something you could find yourself on the deck pretty, pretty quickly So once you have got them slung, as it's called, I mean, I can't reach up now. You used to have to reach up and hold. Oh, you can reach up now. Yeah, hold this bar, and then you've got to swing your body up and over, and then down into the hammock. So you've got to have some upper body strength here. You've got to pull
2: yourself up so it's like a pull up bar you pull yourself up swing yourself into the hammock And then how do you get down you just fall
3: fall fall out as best you can well You grab hold of the bar, right? Which is above it and then swing yourself out. So these are about se- seven foot above our heads Yeah, and well, I, yeah. I, I was still in my teens almost and my body weight was only ten stone So I didn't have enough body strength to lift myself up. Well, how would you get up? the boot up the back side. Yeah, the boot
2: up the back side. By a f- so-called friend. With <laughs> some great pleasure. Yeah, absolutely.
3: But because the hammocks used to be put up so close together, yeah. if you pulled yourself up, and especially if you was getting back in the middle of the night or something, it didn't matter when, really, you've got to force yourself between the two hammocks and and then just you let yourself down. And uh, likewise, I think like I said in uh, a previous part of the commentary, you used to lift yourself up and if you weren't in the right bodily position, you could come down in the chap's hammock next to you, on top of that. He wouldn't be very happy. And then, it was very bad, it was much harder in the night when you come off watch because the place used to just just have a sort of background, dim background light in there. And I never enjoyed it very much. Once you was in your hammock, you couldn't get a better sleep, you know, under normal conditions. So at least they rock. Yeah, swing, you know, side to side. And uh, there's no better place to sleep in a hammock, under, you know, people put, put them up in the garden. Well,
2: let's go have a look at the rest of the ship. T- take me around, take me around your home. Yeah. This is bad. So that's another side of just day-to-day life on the ship. Oh, You're battling it. the guns as well. Yeah. But when it came down to actually being under hostile fire, yeah. did Belfast ever come under attack while you were on board?
3: She came under attack once but i just left the ship by then okay and sadly we lost one of our crew members as well. the only one to have ever been lost on no we lost a further two. Oh, but on board no they were part of we used to have a contingent of royal marines on board permanently and they were multi-purpose marines first of all they were all members of the ship's band Right. we had the Royal Marine Band, right. But they also were trained in warfare mm-hmm. to be landed ashore and take part in whatever. And were they? Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. And we lost two of them who were sent ashore. Uh, and they were in a small boat and the boat just disappeared. And they were two Royal Marines. And... The worst thing about their deaths is that they have what is called no-known graves. And I have been out to Korea since the war on the invitation of the Korean government. And it's very, very hard. I'm 90 years old now. And I doubt if there's been many days in the last 72 years when the names of those three shipmates have not cross my mind, because they were a part of a big family, you see. And yeah, there was a Chinese steward who got scolded to death when we were hit, when the ship was hit, and the shell came through the starboard side of the ship up forward. And very unluckily, this Chinese steward, whose name was Lars So, had been on watch in the morning, so he got into his hammock to get a bit of rest, and the shell came through the side of the ship, and it hit the main hot water pipe that was taking the water around the ship. His hammock was immediately underneath the hot water pipe, and he was scolded to death. He didn't die straight away, but not long after, and he couldn't be buried in the normal naval tradition at sea because of his religion or whatever. So under the cover of darkness he was taken ashore in one of the ship's boats. Those members of the boat took him ashore and they dug a grave near the water and they laid him to rest there. But afterwards we found that Unfortunately, we had buried him in North Korea and not South Korea. So I had made various attempts to find out where he's buried, especially when I went back there in 2004 and various others. And we have found the name of the island as Sokto in North Korea, but there's no chance of getting any remains not in North Korea. So that was a very big loss to the members, right? Yeah, and the legacies are still there. Yes, I mean, some don't think about it at all, but unfortunately I do, or not unfortunately, but I feel that's what I owe to them, those three chaps and that, you know, when everyone else got a the ship that chucked them when it came back in 1952, those three poor souls never, and that's what warfare is about. And that is why I give talks to children, the IWM, my local schools, to let them know that there's always a very big cost involved.
2: The true cost yeah. and horror of war. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned about the Marines going to shore, and you were two years on Belfast. Did you get to go to shore as well frequently or no, frequently? No, no, well,
3: because we could never go ashore in Korea at all, because there was no place safe enough for us to go ashore, the only time we were got only a few hours ashore is when we went down to one of the Japanese ports like Yokosuka, Yokohama, or Curie or something to replenish the ship, both in uh, munitions and provisions. And we might have three days in one of those ports and then back up to the war zone.
2: So you were largely on Belfast for two years. So you got those sea legs. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
3: I think so. (laughs) Yes. but, you know, there were so many other aspects of living on board. And I talk about the fact that we had no privacy whatsoever. Whatsoever, huh? There was no space on ship that weren't manned and so forth, except one where I used to go to if I wanted to try and find a bit of solace and quietness, which was in the ship's chapel. But that can only take about 12 or 13 people. Was
2: it always busy? It's just around the corner from us now. Was it always busy?
3: Well, it was It was open all the time if anybody wanted to go in there and yeah. try to find a bit of peace in mind and so forth. But that's where I used to go. But people who were writing their letters home to their loved ones, I wasn't married, I wasn't caught in, a, I didn't know about those things. my. You were too busy. <laughs> I was writing letters home and you all sat down at the same mess tables to write your letters home and there would some who would put their arm right up what they were writing so nobody else could see like you was in the school class when yeah. you was a children, okay? Don't you dare look over my so-and-so shoulder Norman, and so forth and that was part of life but the, ad- the other side of that in writing letters home was hoping to God that you would have a letter come from home to you And we only used to get mail every six or seven weeks because it would take nearly two months from a letter from London to get all the way out to Korea because it used to have to come on different ships in different stages. So we never got many letters as such, but the worst thing of receiving a letter for some people were the Dear John letters. The Dear John letters used to wreak havoc. We'd gone for two years. Right, yeah, because there was no compassionate leave. You couldn't go home and see what that If you were single and just got a, if you got a Dear John letter from your girlfriend, hard though it was, that wasn't as bad as if you were a married man, right? And I remember the very first instance when a married chap got a Dear John letter in our mess. He wasn't overly old, but he got a wife and two children. And when the mail used to come on board and had been sorted out by mess, a message would come over the tunnel and say, leading hand to the mail office and he would go up and you would look at his two hands. And if he'd got letters in two hands, you know that there was a chance that might be for one for you. But if he only had letters in one hand, you knew that almost not everybody was going to get a letter. But this chap got a letter one day and he started effing them blind and blind like a lot, nobody's business. And we said, what's the matter, Jimmy, whatever his name was now? Yeah. He said, oh, I was my so-and-so wife. She's left home and taken the two children with her. Now that chap couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't go off the ship and drown himself in beer or whatever. He he had no respite, but to stay in that cramped mess deck with everyone else, trying to somehow come to terms with that most shocking of news that anybody could get. We had no counselling, nothing that is of today's medium, no No post-traumatic stress or disorder, although it occurred almost every day, but we had no way of relieving ourselves of that you know just lately last two years i've suffered from quite bad anxiety yeah. um one of the ladies yeah. who helped me she said i do think ron that it goes right back to your days in the korean war when you lost three shipmates and you had to live with the poor information that some of your mastics go and she may be right but i'm not going to make an issue of it because i can't go But that type of letter was absolutely soul-destroying. He was going to have to wait until the ship got home, go and knock on his front door and see who was there. Well, thank
2: goodness that has changed so much over the years and that support is there. It's one of the most amazing things the Royal Navy is they do have the support for this sort of stuff.
3: That was a big part of the mental side of being in that type of situation in war. It's the human cost of deployment, the human cost of war. Yes, there was a human cost other than the physical cost. Right, there's the mental cost. And so when did your war come to an end, Ron? The ship had to go down to Singapore, I can't remember when, after about a year and a half, I think. Because what had happened is that during the Second World War, or during the Korean War, shall I say, the ship fired its six-inch guns more, far more than it ever did in the whole of the Second World War because that's what we were doing day in, day out, day in, day out. So the sheer tonnage for the Korean yes. War was more than the entirety of the Second World yes, War, yes. more
2: than those bombings on
3: D-Day. Of the yes, in absolutely, England. absolutely. And of course, it took us toll on the, gun barrels. So she had to go down to Singapore and have her barrels changed, right renewed. And that is when I was left the Belfast because I had been drafted to another ship. Okay, which was not a warship as we know the Belfast, but a British Naval Oceanographic survey ship that came after and that was a completely different world. But coming back to the Belfast, there was all the daily events, like the rum Russian come up at 12 o'clock, 10-I signal would come over, group to the RAM office, and the designated leading hand used to go up there and he would take a little container and he would get in the queue and you got to the front and you saluted the officer. And he would say, number 20, Mastec, and then the other chap would dish rum out, which was always one part rum and two parts water. Now, you might think that two parts water is going to diminish the strength of the rum on the individual, but it doesn't at all, I tell you. And there were various naval traditions that go back way back in time in that, If it was your birthday, you would go up and hold your glass in front of the chapitian out who had all sorts of tricks up his sleeve to maybe not give you enough that he was entitled to by the way he put his thumb down in front in your glass. So when the chapitian out your rum said, all right, okay, stand back, and you knew for a fact that he'd had his thumb down in the glass, which meant at the end of the day you weren't getting as much as you were entitled to. So if it was your birthday, the rest of the crew would come back and offer you one or three options. If you had your birthday, they'd say, right, take a sipper's, Norman. So you just took a sip of his rum. He wished you a happy birthday. You took the sipper and handed it back to him. If there was a more benevolent chap he would say right Norman have a gulp so you take a gulp of his rum down which is quite a lot and then give it back to him but if there was somebody somebody really really generous he would give you his glass and say happy birthday Ron see it off. Is that a present or is that a punishment? No that was a present. (laughs) It proved a punishment after you'd been around a few of them because you was merely standing up. But to drink the whole of the chap's rum down, well, I don't know, I've seen some of the most remarkable scenes after somebody's birthday on ships that I, I can ever remember. And, you know, they're just mind-boggling and so funny that, you know, they stuck in your mind forever. So after you've been round your shipmates in your mess deck, Someone would come through your door who knew you and say, oh, it's your birthday today, Norman. Have a sip. So, you know, after half an hour, 45 minutes, you is a, a very happy bunny and so forth. <laughs> but the traditions of the rum Russian are go back for years and years and years. So the day that the rum Russian started it was stopped. I'd left the Navy long by then, but it was a very sad day because they thought it interfered with the individual's performance and so forth, which probably they did, was right and so forth. Especially on your birthday. Yes, Uh, so there was all those things, you know, day-to-day issues, uh, entertainment, you made your own entertainment, right? You play Ludo, which was called Uckers, the naval tradition name. And I've seen a simple game of Uckers turned almost into war because one chap has accused the other of moving his counter further up or further there, something so silly and simple. But because it was the individual letting out his stress, okay, that you've got by living day to day, We'd play dominoes, we'd play cards and so forth. And just now and again, we would get a wonderful jam session, as we used to call it, and still call it now, from the Royal Marine Band, okay, up in one of the rooms. And they were few and far between, but they were hugely enjoyable. Used to have boxing matches between crew. One crew member would try to knock the life out of another one, and half an hour later, and they were supposed to be good friends again. <laughs> so it was all these things. Well,
2: Ron, thank you so much for taking us through all of this history, from the, the day-to-day life, from what it was like in combat. Yeah. And, and when did all of this come to an end for you? When did you make it back to Chatham?
3: Well, I made it to back to Chatham, believe it, not on a troop ship, because I had been transferred to this survey ship where I spent the most blissful and wonderful of my naval days surveying down off the coasts of Borneo and Sarawak and it was desert island stuff it really was how I could write a book about Borneo
2: itself well you know what we're going to get you back on to talk about Borneo because that sounds fascinating well
3: I had such absolutely incredible time on Borneo it was so completely relaxed once again, you had to do your job properly. We didn't have to wear the ship's uniform on a daily basis like you did on this wonderful big thing and so forth. But I got back to Southampton on one of the uh, troop ships and um, made my way home, but it took me a long, long time. Although I don't think I ever have got over the, the images of the Korean War and really, what I haven't mentioned is the absolutely wonderful, wonderful reception from the Korean people we've got for the last 70 years. One of my wardrobe cabinets is absolutely full up with wonderful gifts from the Korean because i belong belonged to the British Korean Veterans Association, which is a separate issue to this association and the incredible time that they gave us in Korea was just something
2: to behold. I think that that is the perfect point to finish on. Ron, thank yeah, you so yeah.
3: much for your time. Oh, My pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs>
2: Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at JamesRogersHistory, and on TikTok, also at JamesRogersHistory. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.